Hi, this is Tom, and you are listening to the Tomlin's podcast, evidently. Um, actually, I was really arrogant, but yeah, you are listening to my podcast, and on my podcast, I talk to author Joe Craig again. Um, those of you who have subscribed, which I advocate you all do, um, those of you who have listened in the past will know that I went to interview Joe two years ago, maybe just a bit more, maybe a bit less, I can't quite recall. But anyway, I've spoken to him before and we had a long ambling chat about his books, his life, his music and everything in between. And I felt that two years was probably long enough to go without the wonder that is Joe Craig. So I went back and interviewed him again. Um, Obviously, things have changed slightly. He's moved house um, and he's got a big announcement that he makes very early on and didn't actually make it as often as I thought he might do. But there is an announcement, it's really big, and any of you who are fans of Joe Craig will be very excited by this announcement. Anyway, it's long interview, I'm not going to apologise for that because I love talking to him, and he is so incredibly interesting to talk to. Enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Yeah, so this is a podcast in association with Arts Award Voice, um, and we are talking to author, musician, and general all-round great person, Joe Craig. Thanks very much. Um, do you wish to like give a little blurb introduction about yourself? Great, I'm Joe Craig. I'm. Oh, I stumbled over the first the first hurdle. <laughs> what am name. I? I was going to say I'm an author, but you've already done that. You've given me a great intro. I'm, I'm the author of the Jimmy Coates books, among other things, the action thriller series, mainly aimed at the eight to thirteen crowd. Seem to like it, and the new one, Jimmy Coates Blackout. It's coming out on June the 6th. Mm. That's the occasion that we're celebrating. June the 6th. June the 6th. Jimmy Coates Blackout, the 7th in the series. You don't have to have read the others. You can just start with number 7, that's fine. Can you really? Yeah, lots of people just start in the middle. Lots of people read them in reverse order as well, I found. And that works? Uh, yeah, apparently it does. And actually, having reread a couple of them with that in mind, it would work really well to read them in reverse order. And you're just discovering the backstory in sections. All you, all you need to do now is just pretend that was deliberate. And yeah, and then release them in the other order. Yes. Yeah. It was like a, um, like a special edition book, and then all you're yeah. doing is amalgamating all of the books into one in reverse order. Exactly. And then you can charge 50 quid or something, and then... Actually, yeah. So you can um, so you can start with Jimmy Coates Blackout, if you want to. Awesome. So I've I... been diverted into publicising my new book already, as opposed to just introducing myself. <laughs> That's I'm, good. I'm Joe. It's good. I'm Joe. I'm a, a This book is a big... Moment, like a massive occasion because last time I interviewed you, the book wasn't coming out. Yeah, I know. It's and, exciting, right? Yeah, and it's taken two years. Yeah. Well, no, how long has it been now? It's been. Ah, uh, the dog's here, everyone. Um, he's very cuddly. Yeah, yeah, how long has it been since this book has like been written and waiting to be released? Well, Jimmy Coates' Power, the previous one, came out in 2008, the end of 2008, and Jimmy Coates' Blackout was due to come out in April 2009, but didn't. So I'd finished writing it. The December before that, so 2008, 2009. 2008, 2009. We're now in 2013. We are in 2013, and it hasn't come out yet. But now it is coming out, bigger and better. It's the same book. I've yeah, spruced it up a little <laughs> bigger bit. Bigger and better. Yeah, but it's exactly um, the same. There's been no like major changes or plot developments in the. There's been an extra edit. Okay. There's, yeah, the, the no major changes. The plot's the same because the plot has to stay the same because that's all planned out and. You've done the whole thing. Yeah, halfway through writing number eight, but. In all this time, you haven't even written number eight. No, I've written other things. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been finishing the series, and then you could just like literally sit there and just like 
drip feed them out rather than have to work now. I'm not quite sure I liked the gesture for drip feed. <laughs> she wouldn't have seen. There was quite a, quite a, what outland? I'm using the word outlandish. Outlandish. Yeah. Quite well, a gesture for drip feeding. Go on camera. I'm not sure the drip feeding. <laughs> As a word, suits the, the gesture that you just did. Well, the NHS has got severe cuts now, so okay, drastic measures. I think your your yeah your gesture was more gushing than, than drip feeding. Yes, I'm sorry. This is why I don't go on camera. I stay <laughs> behind the screen. This is why it's fun for me. <laughs> just don't like draw attention to me. I'm not here. Okay. Really. Um, yes. So in all this time, you've not written the rest of the series. What do you want me to say to that? Do you want me to, 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 to grovel? I, mean, I do I, want you to grovel. I've been busy writing apologize. other things. Well, my approach was that the series was on hold temporarily, and I used the time to get into other stuff. I made an album, I started writing a movie, which I'm still working on, which is exciting, and I made plans for other books, and one of those is a book that I'm working on now. Um... I'm looking at myself on the screen. You should I'm, probably ask me another question. No, I'm just going to let you go ahead. <laughs> I'll just stare at myself. Yeah. Um, oh, we are being tweeted in already. Thanks for joining us, people from Twitter. Yes. Biscuit uh, and tea. Now, this biscuit is a Kipful biscuit, which I believe is a Viennese traditional biscuit. Uh, I think it's a hazelnut biscuit. Very tasty. My dad used to make amazing Kipful biscuits. Apparently, he still does, but less. Is your dad Viennese or? Vietnamese. Vietnamese. Viet Viennese. No, he's neither Viennese, Viennese nor Vietnamese. Is it not Viet? Is it not Vietnamese? V. No, it's not, is it? No. No, I'm going to stop talking <laughs> as well. It's <laughs> like gesture. Come on, questions. Questions. So, in the time where you've not been writing the Jimmy Coates series, you've mm -hmm. been writing a movie, you've released an album, and done other stuff. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall we start with the album? Okay. Tell us about the album. Is this Journeys of the Song? Yeah, the Song Man and Me. The Song Man and Me. There's a singer-songwriter album that I made. When I was working as a musician, before I started writing books, I was a composer, songwriter, I wrote music for film, TV, theatre, that kind of thing. And I wrote songs for other people, which was lots of fun. And then I got diverted into writing the Jimmy Coates series, which was great, but it left no time for doing music, and I sort of left that behind. Which felt like a shame, because I always enjoyed that. I loved writing songs. That was my first passion, really. Mm. Certainly the first thing that I'd ever wanted to do professionally. So I decided I didn't want to let it go completely and just wrote a few extra songs for the first time, writing them for me to perform, mm. which is very different. And then just made a little album with the help of some talented engineers and uh, friends. I was able to put together a little album, which is available on iTunes and you can hear it all for free through my website and download it if you want to. By website paying, being by jokecraig.co.uk. Yeah, jokecraig.co.uk yes. is of course the website. And I occasionally put up extra little songs that you can download free. So there's one on, there's a couple of things that you can find. Can't get too much into that, but maybe I'll tweet a link later to a free song. Hasn't yes, I? tweet everything. Yeah. Um, tweet, advertise yourself, and Arts Award Voice, obviously, who are sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Arts Award Voice. Yes. Um, this is great. I love this. We have now got a question from Twitter already. They are starting to come in. Okay. And um, Emrys Green would like to know what your new film is about and how you made the jump from book writing to film writing. That was one of the most... questions. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Was it Emma? Emrys. Emrys. Sorry, I thought that was like a full name. Emma S. Green. Uh, no. Emrys. Okay. Emrys. I 
was lucky to have contacts with film people through my book. So because my, that's a long convoluted way of saying that because my books came out, film producers were interested in me and my books so were in touch. And not all of them could get the rights to Jimmy Coates. So one of them said, what, are, what else have you got? Have you got other ideas? So I said, yeah, loads of stuff. Just, yeah, give me a minute. Um, so I writing them down on a yeah, napkin or something. Came up with another idea that I pitched to this producer, who's a really fantastic lady, experienced, knows her stuff, sharp, smart, funny, and she said, "Great, let's do it." So she commissioned me to write a screenplay. It's an action thriller adventure story, broadly speaking, in the world of superheroes, but the real version of the world of superheroes. That was the approach that I took to the story, wanting to take a real-life approach to what it would take for there to be an actual superhero. Okay. Not just a costume and some powers. So, are the real-life superheroes, um, there's are one. they, if there's one? Yeah, otherwise it gets silly. Well, that is a struggle with superheroes because... Michael Carroll might disagree. Oh, Michael. <laughs> but underneath that there's a scientific basis for there being more than one, as in X-Men. Mm. And they're not, yeah, I wouldn't... So you've read his books? Yeah, well you could argue that, yeah, we share a publisher and editor, you could argue that... Um, That's a nice tidbit of information. Yeah, thank you. You, you could argue the X-Men aren't superheroes in the tradition of, say, Spider-Man. Mm. They're based in real life, and there is, like, just a mutation <sighs> with X-Men. The trouble is, uh, somehow superhero sto stories do get away with it, where it stretches believability for there to be one unrealistic, if you like, but believable character, if it's done well, who has amazing powers through some weird coincidental happening, mm. like bitten by a uranium-enriched spider, whatever it is for Spider-Man, to take yeah. an example. But then to also believe that at the same time, not that far away, in the same bit of the world, some supervillain has had some other coincidental accident <laughs> to make him a supervillain, that troubles me in terms of writing stories and what you're asking an audience to believe. Mm. It's problematic to me. Okay. So I wanted to do a much more real and, well, that's the approach I took with Jimmy Coates as well, that you can have witches and wizards and vampires and all of that stuff, but there's a great H.G. Wells quote that I'm very fond of, if anything is possible, nothing is interesting. If you put it in the real world, for me it immediately becomes more exciting because you have extraordinary things happening in the real world rather mm. than just normal things happening in some extraordinary world where you can make up the rules seemingly as you go along. The good fantasy writers don't do that, but it's harder, I think. It's hard for me as a reader. Yeah, okay. Um, I just remembered that when you were quoting that you studied philosophy at Cambridge, didn't you? Ah, oh, my, my quoting, yeah. Your quoting, yes. Studied it, philosophy. It betrays your... Um... Should I have done that in the <laughs> intro about me? Should I have given you a little potted biog? No, we'll drop it in. We'll drop, we it, drop in it in seamlessly, we, yeah. We can't... It's live, Tom. This is happening now. It's going yes. out on the internet. I know, and we are both professionals in the, the sense that we can internet. manage this. Like, we'll just... Oh, I see. Mention. Yeah, we'll oh, just oh, right, we'll just drop it in. Oh, I see. Like yes. we just did. Good. Yes. Good. <laughs> you didn't draw attention to it. No, not in the slightest. Yes, I studied philosophy <laughs> at uni, which I loved. I thought, I thought you meant edit it later. I will be editing audio later for, like, my actual podcast release, because... Can I, you make my voice deeper? I can do a lot of things. Cool. Maybe that. I don't know. Maybe I'll just mask it completely. I'll just take, <laughs> take myself out. Because that would make life so much easier. But, um, yeah, study philosophy. That was just an aside point. But what I wanted to... What I don't want to talk about, what I do, is um, going back to the superhero thing. Would you be uh, suggesting that maybe it's something more 
like Batman who like do they have no powers at all like Batman or is it just one person who has powers and then what you're it's, suggesting is there's no arch enemy it's one person mm -hmm. who has abilities based on a real science and scientific grounding as it is in Jimmy Coates really because the genetically engineered abilities that Jimmy has are based in real science however strange and weird and wonderful they seem and however strange they seemed to me when I was writing in the time since I wrote the first one the genetic engineering capabilities Absolutely. have advanced and they have done it they've created a Jimmy Coates rat in effect I'll talk about that in a second if you want to but the, yes, I the film thing I, I wanted to take a real <clears throat> science approach to a superhero but also a real motivation character approach because a superhero has two things the abilities and the desire to do the sorts of things that superheroes do. And they don't necessarily go together. Okay. And often it's assumed that it is. That as soon as somebody can fight bad guys and jump off buildings and fly and whatever, that they immediately want to go and save people. And that's not a given to me. Why do they want to do that? What do you think they'd want to do? Well, that's not what I would do. If I had superpowers, that's not what I would do. Just sitting in your man cave, writing a bit quicker. If I, well, for example, if I could fly, mm. I wouldn't fly around. I'd be subtle about it. <laughs> I, I'd keep it a secret. And just as I was talking to someone, I'd... Just levitate. Yeah, I'd just start floating. Just a little bit. Isn't that what Superman did, just though? so they don't notice. The I'm doing it now, and you haven't even noticed. Well, I'm just... Just camera to, editing, I'll make it happen later. Just to be a little bit disconcerting to them, and then they go away afterwards and they go, was he floating? <laughs> so I'd do that. Okay, so you'd be very subtle with your capabilities. I'd be borderline evil. I don't, I don't even doubt that. I think, I think, I think <laughs> well, you could say that getting superpowers just exaggerates the personality you have already. Okay. And the motivations you have already you can fulfil in different ways. Mm. But all of the superheroes who got their capabilities through um, scientific, I can't swear I'm alive, um, super, like scientific um, stuff. accidents, your yes. stuff, yes, yeah. um, they were all good people anyway, so maybe that is why they are motivated. You could argue that there's some mythology yeah, but then, and Spider-Man is definitely going that way. But then the question is, well... It, that's kind of a lucky coincidence, isn't it? That these well, yes, remarkable the story. <laughs> that these remarkable accidents happens to the one person in a billion who really wants to help everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well... Deserving. So I wanted to combine those things in a character to give them more personal reasons to do particular things, not just help people. Okay, so are they, are they actually a superhero, or is that just a colloquial term for somebody who has superpowers... And they will be um, <clears throat> not altruistic. They will just like follow a modern, normal person's moral compass. They're not going to just bum around and do what I would do with superpowers. It's going to be more <laughs> exciting stories than that. And they will be fighting bad guys and <laughs> and all of that stuff. So it's more exciting, but for particular personal reasons and strongly, more strongly motivated than just oh no, there's a bus of children falling off a bridge. Let's help them. Great, lucky kids. <laughs> Yeah, so. <laughs> what would you say? It's just like, oh, screw the kids. I'm too busy levitating in front of my friends. I would say there's, there's <clears throat> other kids on another bus somewhere that I'm not going to be able to save. So you'll you let can't both save of them every die. You can't save every busload of kids. Don't beat yourself up about No, you can save it's some. Fine. You can save one. But do you have to? Do you have to save the children? I, <laughs> <laughs> I would. 
would I? It depends. He's what thinking mood deeply. I was. The, the what mood, it depends what mood I was in. If sometimes I well, there you go. So the like, superpowers exaggerate your existing mm. moods and behaviours. Well, yeah, that's an incredibly dangerous and temperamental thing to do. I think. And you've stolen the orangey biscuits. I have stolen. Would you like an orange biscuit? I'm gonna have an orange biscuit. I'll pass them off. Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I'm going through them pretty quickly, so you might want to take them off me. That's all right. Carry on. Um, okay, so this film. Uh, I think we should talk a l- more about the writing process that went into it because your books are very, um, like they are very grounded. On the walk here, you were telling me about how you um, are using real life locations and things. That yeah, we walked past one of them. Place. We walked past the Forum in Kentish Town, which is the location <clears throat> for one of the big set pieces of the new book, Jimmy Coates Blackout. I don't call it the Forum in the book. I rename it because Jimmy Coates takes place in a slightly alternative version of Britain. So it's got a different name or a different background to it. But um, I always use real-life locations for all of the, the series. The writing process for the film is in many ways very similar to the writing process for the book because I structure the story very carefully and plan the story very carefully before I start writing. And I do that with graphs and charts in my notebooks and cards that I put up on pin boards. I've got pin boards in my study over there, you can see it later if you want. Hopefully you can't. (laughs) (laughs) I I presume then that there's some sensitive stuff on there Mm. that I should not sneak in to see when I go to the loo. No. Okay. Um, And certainly don't go to the loo in my study. That would be a big mistake. But that process remains the same. I structure the Mm. stories in a very similar way because when I'm writing a book I'm not thinking of it as a book. I'm thinking of it as a story Mm. for whatever medium it's going to be. So the planning process is the same. The writing process for the movie, in some ways, has actually been easier, well, more exciting, for, for a particular set of reasons. For example, when you're writing a book, if there are particular things that you need to have in a scene for the plot to work, like if a character is going to throw a mug at his opponent later in the scene. Yes. You need to set up at the beginning of the scene that he's got a mug. Okay. And you've got to do it in a way that isn't dull, isn't clunkingly obvious, that just is seamless and part of the story so that the reader isn't bored or too distracted by the mug. But then when the mug moment happens, it makes sense. Yeah. So in a book, that's hard work and takes a lot of craft to put all the information in but mask it in, in a way that's fluent and works with the story. When you're writing a movie, you just put at the beginning of the scene, interior, living room, day, Joe's on a sofa holding a mug. And that's it. And then you get on with the story. (laughs) So that makes certain things hugely easier, Mm. especially for the kind of story that I'm writing, the type that I write. So for action thriller stories, in Jimmy Coates, if I slowed down and started describing the scenery or the mugs, it's just death. It's dull. Dull to write, dull to read, and the story wouldn't work. But obviously, do you have an image in your mind of what that scenery is like? Or are you just completely <clears throat> focused on the interaction between the characters? It depends. If it's a real place, then obviously I do. But even then, I can't take time to set out in detail in some kind of travelogue style everything that's there to be seen. Mm. You can just put in one or two things for the reader to join the dots themselves and create the scene. <laughs> Yeah. Have you had a funny tweet? Go on. Yes, we do. Um, sorry to interrupt you, sorry. but um, Michaela Lewis um, has just tweeted in and she wanted to ask in your film, is the protagonist the Jimmy Coates rat? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be awesome. Like Ratatouille meets the Born Identity. Could could be happening now. I'm fairly sure in the war they train dogs to do special things and dolphins. Yeah. So yeah. Is that your? Is this your grounded realism? <laughs> the uh, the the Jimmy Coates rat is. There, there's videos on YouTube. You can search for it. I can't remember what you have to search for, but you'll find it. I presume it's not called Jimmy Coates rat. No, there's a genetic. It's just to show the the potential and the capabilities of genetic engineering. And it astounded me when I saw it because it was after I wrote the first couple of Jimmy Coates books, when I thought that what I was writing was largely fiction and just my imaginings. But there's a rat that they've engineered to have all well basically all the capabilities that, that Jimmy has are the equivalent in rats. So they have two rats Speaking on range. Two rats on treadmills <laughs> and they run until one of them <laughs> you can't get on my gestures. <laughs> until one of them gets tired, falls off and dies. And then the other one just keeps going because it's genetically engineered to be stronger, faster, and it looks around and doesn't know what's going on. So I saw that and thought, okay, great, that's physical. You can genetically engineer that. Great, you can breed that. It's not actually mm. that advanced. What about the other things Jimmy can do? Learning languages, picking up how to fly a helicopter, intuitive things. So there's another video of the different rats, and they show the rats a pool of cloudy water, so you can't see below the surface, but it's too deep for the rats to survive. Okay. Except at one point <clears throat> where there's a shelf just below the surface. Yeah. They show the rats where the shelf is, and then one after the other, they drop the normal rat in first, who swims around desperately trying to find this shelf or trying to stay alive until it drowns and it's dead. Don't think that actually happens, but it can't find the shelf. Right. And then they drop the other one in, it just goes straight to the shelf, sits up and goes, all right, well, what's next? doesn't actually say that. It says it in French. No, it doesn't say yeah. that. <laughs> so, but, so, so there's learning capabilities genetically engineered into the rat. And that's just exactly what is in Jimmy. Is that... Do you feel that that's actually necessary, though? Like, should we be really buggering about... I'm going to say... Should we really be doing that with animals? Like, let's not just go into the whole vivisection element of it here, but what is the purpose of doing that with animals? Because all it is doing is raising them to an, an intelligence level of a human. So I, don't I don't think see how it can progress. I don't think they're doing us. it for the direct advancement <clears throat> of rats. Well, I mean, in general... I'm not sure that's the plan. I think they're using it for other applications and to show what's possible to test their limits and to research and investigate. Because if you can improve well, anything, the more we learn about the genome, you can, you can get in there and tinker with it. And then you get into the whole question of ethically what should you be doing with it. But mm. they're working on the technical capabilities of what they can do. But for disease and development, it's all yeah. amazing stuff. Cool. But not just, for assassinating government enemies. Yeah, so just to clarify, he's not going to be the main protagonist of your film. No, good idea though. <clears throat> Michaela should write that. Steal it. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that. Um, yeah. So, your film, is it going to be a TV or will it hopefully be going on the big screen? That depends. It's, it's early days so nobody knows yet. Uh, whether, yeah. it, whether it even gets made will be another question, so don't get too hung up on that. Okay, <laughs> but you've been writing it for a year. Yeah, I've been working on it on and off for the last year and a half or so. It's moving on this year, moving forward, developing more quickly, so that's quite exciting. Um, and a question I feel I should ask um, regarding the um, pay structure of it, in case anybody wishes to go <laughs> into a career in film writing. Right. Um, how does that work? It depends. You can just sit at home and write a movie if you want to. But obviously no one's going to turn up and pay you for that. 
so you need to then try to sell it. What I did was, because I was in the fortunate position of having those meetings with, with producers because of my books, they commissioned me to write the screenplay, so you get paid to write it a small amount relative to what you get paid if it does then get made. So it's kind of split up and there's various grades in between. Mm. Cool. And um, let's hypothesise the film gets made mm -hmm. or the film goes into production. <clears throat> How much creative control are you going to have over none? none? You've well, written the script I write the and scripts. that's it. I write the script and move on, yeah. Okay, and would you like creative control? No. I, I, you wouldn't. Well, if I'm, if I'm at some point directing a movie mm. or writing and directing a movie, if I'm... Like a Jimmy Coates one. Well, I wouldn't direct a Jimmy Coates movie. Let someone else do that. I've, yeah, I've written the books. So I've told the story mm. the way that I tell it. It's for someone else to do it now. I mean, at some point in the future, if I became a filmmaker, which isn't beyond the realms of possibility, but nothing I'm pursuing at the moment, then that's different. I have creative control over my books, but I go into the world of movie writing without that... Even as a as a question, really, I write the script to serve the story and to serve the whole production and the producer and, and all of that. But it's not a question of having creative control. Okay. I, yeah. <clears throat> so have you just like secretly insinuated that you may potentially want to go into films in the future? Well, no, I'm just not ruling it out. I think it would ha might happen at some point, depending on how things go. I, I wouldn't, while I was a musician, have expected to go into writing books mm. and while writing books I wouldn't have expected to go into writing movies so you never know what's going to happen yeah it seems to change every few years <laughs> it's not the worst that's it's flexibility yeah um so I've come here with the focus of talking about your books and your writing great um <clears throat> processes um and we've already discussed how you base everything in real life yeah. and yeah. um you go out and actually research these places do you, um, how do you afford that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them's down the road, so that was quite but lazy. That's, that's the laziest one. In the first book, Jimmy Coates' Killer, there's a large section of it set in Finchley, where I grew up. So again, lazy. Um, most of the first book is set in London. The, I know London. The bits that aren't set in London, as the series goes on, I think book two, there's bits in France, and book three mainly is New York, book four... Um, there's an oil rig in the North Sea, which I didn't get to go to, so I had to glean that information from other places. I don't necessarily go to all of the places. Mm. But the other places that I used as locations are places that I knew anyway from having been there already, or was going to make a trip to at some point. Okay. So it's... I don't decide off the top of my head to set somewhere to set a book in a particular place and then have to save up to do a massive trip to that place. That's not the way that I do it. And to be honest... A sensible way. Well, for most things, I'm going to say this carefully, it's not always necessary to actually go there. There's books that have been written even before the age of the internet, set entirely in a place where the author has never been, and they did it from street maps mm. and atlases and guidebooks. Now it's even easier to do that. City so you can, and... <laughs> Yeah, you can do it online, Google Maps and Street View and all of that stuff makes it much easier. I think it depends what you're writing. Mm. For me, the, the danger that I always wanted to avoid was to use just the obvious, cliché, tourist attraction sites. I'm not going to do an action sequence where someone's hanging off the Statue of Liberty or scaling down the 
Big Ben or something like that because they're the obvious, what I would call first base thinking, just the first things that come into your head. All right, let's do a big action sequence. Statue of Liberty, Big Ben, oh great. I want to use more interesting places than that, places that serve the story better. Okay, yeah. That are in a way are more believable to these things could actually happen in the places where I put them. Mm-hmm. You're very, very um, focused on believability, aren't you? Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, that's a Bugs Bunny quote. Well, Chuck Jones, who wrote and directed a lot of Bugs Bunny cartoons, said, don't give me something realistic, give me something believable. And it's true. What matters for someone reading it or seeing it is not whether it's real or not, because mm. there's some stuff that is real that you'd never believe if you put it in a book. What matters is whether it's believable, whether you believe this character doing what they're doing, and whether you can go with them on that journey. Mm. Okay. Like, I'm, I feel like I've been slammed now. I'm not sure <laughs> what to say. Right, carry on. Um, I'm having a biscuit. <clears throat> Can I have one of those, actually? No. no. Of course you can. Go on. Yeah. I've got dog on my hand, though. So you're going to have to die I will across. invade the camera. Biscuit mm. stealer. Yeah. <sighs> These are nice. Mm. You don't have a nut allergy, do you? No. Phew. You're no. dead. <laughs> that would make in- interesting broadcasting, but... Uh, yeah. Dead <laughs> live on air. Bouncing on the floor. I'd yet. just sit here and watch. Would, <laughs> wouldn't you, if you had superpowers, would you save me? Or no. Would you, no. I might turn the camera around. <laughs> so it was on film. <laughs> So at least your death meant something. <laughs> to who? The viewers <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> mm, well, thank, thank you for that, Joe. Um, Fine. <laughs> I genuinely have nothing to say now. Having survived your biscuit ordeal. I have survived my biscuit ordeal. Tell um, me more things you'd like to know. Oh, there's so much I'd like to know. Okay, cool. Um, Do it. So, c- continuing on the theme of your writing processes, yeah. how do you break up and structure your time? What are, What is the schedule? I... I wish I were better at having a schedule. Schedule, schedule, schedule. Ske- schedule. 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 Time. Like school. Schedule. Okay. <laughs> schedule. Do you disagree? Well, I have a school. I have a timetable. Mm. My schedule is is ridiculously unstructured. I know that some writers get up at a certain time each day, do a certain number of hours writing before some other thing happens. I operate more by word count if I'm working on a draft, but the time the period of time in any given year when I'm actually working on the draft of a book is very small because much more time is needed for planning and for rewriting. Mm. So to sit down and write 2,000 words a day is great. When I get to the stage of doing a draft, that's much much easier because I can plan my day and go, today I'm going to write 2,000 words, no matter what else I do, and I have a chart, I keep a little diary separate from my actual diary of just writing. I write the number of words that I wrote that day, what I ate, what I listened to, and the time that I finished. Really? Yeah. So at the end of the week, I can do a weekly total, daily average, do the stats, work out what combination of food and music created the most number of words. Usually it's sushi and omelettes. Why? Well, is that just because? Not combined. No, okay, well, fine. But an omelette is easy, I don't know why, <clears throat> just, that's from previous books. <clears throat> I don't eat so many omelettes now, maybe that's why I'm writing more slowly. And um, particular music. So combining sushi and Oscar Peterson, for example, that's that's a four thousand word day right there. <laughs> that's a lot like, of words. Is this common practice with authors then, or does everybody have, have no their idea. own? You need your own ways of motivating yourself to keep mm. going and to pursue the. Could you mind passing the water over? Yes. I've got a Viennese biscuit in my throat. It's very inconvenient. Thank you. <laughs> so you need ways to continue yeah. to do what you're doing, which is much harder if you don't have that clear word count to guide you. 
So during the planning process, who knows how much work you've done on any, any given day. You can spend 24 hours puzzling over one particular corner of your plot, more than 24 hours, you can spend weeks on it, just unable to get past one particular thing. And if you have that breakthrough, that's an amazing day's work. It's taken you weeks to get to that point where you look back and go, what was I, what was I doing in that time? <laughs> and just it's just eating omelettes. <laughs> yeah, just trying to combine omelettes and sushi. And, yeah, it, that's much less tangible. And I, I don't have a set schedule for doing it. All that it takes is enough time at your desk with a notebook and a pen and not just wandering about expecting answers to come to you. I, I think there's this myth perpetuated by, by some writers, perhaps not now, but certainly always was, that if you're ever stuck, it's fine, don't worry. If I'm, if I'm ever stuck, I just go for a walk with the dog or I take a bath or I take a bath with the dog and then the answers come to me. And that's not really how it works. Answers don't come to you. Okay. It's a question of sitting down and thinking unbelievably hard for an unbelievably long time. And that's how you do it. And that, to structure that... I'm really envious... This is a terrible thing to say, but I see <laughs> tweets and I see Facebook posts by writers that I admire saying things like, oh, my, my back's playing up again, too many hours at my desk. I, I can't imagine ever being able to sit at my desk long enough for my back to hurt. I mean, it's terrible that people's backs hurt. It's an awful <laughs> affliction to have. But I don't get enough hours to sit at my desk and just write or just think and just that's the time you need and I need to defend that time more. More? Yeah, just to defend it more ardently so I can get to the point where if I ever get a twinge in my back, I go, oh my god, at last I've sat at my desk long enough <laughs> for my back to hurt. So, um, <clears throat> you're writing a book or you've been, like, actually, let's really break it down to basics. Um, you have a plan first, and is it at the point where you have a plan, you then go and find a representative? The word is failing me. It depends. It depends. Are you talking about from the point of view of a new unpublished author? New unpublished author. Okay, so new unpublished author, with. to start with, probably needs to write a really good book. Okay, right. so they That's need to have the finished book. Almost certainly, yes. There are exceptions. But almost certainly, yes, I'd have thought there may be people who disagree or have examples from their own lives where that's not true, where they got deals just on samples, but that's really unusual now. And the thing to do is to find an agent first. Agent. That's all right. I knew you were grasping for that. And the agent does amazing things, and if it's the right agent, it's a wonderful thing to have. And I've been very lucky to have great agents. And then you go into the next process of finding a finding a publisher with your agent. But if it's a good agent, they'll they'll probably work with you on improving the manuscript first. Mm. So the book that you think is finished, when you approach an agent, the book's not finished yet. It's a long way from finished. Okay. So you get your agent. Um, does he give you any money? The agent doesn't give you any money. Mm. Do you give him any money? No, not usually. So you're both buying into the idea of the book. Yes, and it, that's a good. really significant thing mm. because that's probably the first person who has believed in you in that way, to that level, who's not related to you. Yeah. Or who hasn't given birth to you or 
maybe taught you or relation. Yeah, or, yeah. Sounds yeah. <laughs> that more graphically. Uh, it's going to get biological on it, but I it's thought not. I'd no. pull back from that. Um, and particularly because that agent isn't going to get paid until you get paid, because mm. they're getting a cut of what you get. That's the way okay. an agent's paid. What's agent? What's um, like industry standard for? Um... Uh, it depends. It can be. It depends on the type. Some some agents have a set arrangement where they get 10% of some deals, 15% of other types of deals, 20% for other types of deals. So it just depends. 15% is roughly standard. Right, they can take up to a fifth of your work? Yeah. For just talking to publishers? It's not just that, but what they do is usually, if they're good, worth every penny. Mm. Okay, so you are very big on the agent. Yes. Cool. Um, pro-agents. That will lead to another question later, but... Um, to stay on You're track, already I'm, setting up another question. I'm setting up another question. Is it a big no. reveal? No, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to multitask, and I still haven't managed that yet. Okay, is this um, another question from Twitter? No, it's not another question from Twitter. Um, so you've got your agent. You're now talking to publishers. Okay. Uh, publishers, let's say they like your idea. Yes. Um, oh no, at this point they'd have to like your book, wouldn't they, if you're starting out? Yes. Um, will they Im- immediately give you an advance? Say, finish this book and then we'll publish it, or will they say, finish this book, and then we will talk about getting it published? Like, what is the, what is the process and the mechanisms? Good question. The process, if you've finished the book, and then worked on it with the agent, and then the agent has presented it to publishers, let's say you're really lucky, and a publisher is interested, you'll probably have a meeting with them at that point, See if you like them, see if they like you. They'll maybe present some plans to you to convince you that they're going to be good for you and good for the book. If you're a complete lunatic, then they'll be scared off. Mm-hmm. And if they're completely lunatics, you'll be scared off. But hopefully they're not and you're not. And then they'll make an offer. And the offer will be in the form of... The, the basic setup is an advance, which is a chunk of money given to you in advance of the book coming out. And then when the book does come out you get a little percentage of the price of the book, what the, what the customer pays for in a shop or online, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Uh, you get a little percentage called royalty, and then they keep the royalties until it adds up to the amount of money that they paid you in advance. And then if you keep selling books on top of that, they start paying you the royalties. Okay. That's called earning out your advance. So the advance isn't like a... Um upfront payment they are taking that from your work later yeah it's on. called an advance against royalties it's okay it's sort of the, the technical thing. term but you do get to keep it if the mm. book came out and only my mum bought it yeah maybe she bought two copies because she likes me but then took one back because she didn't like it that much because <laughs> she's needed to like prop up the yeah the author still keeps the advance okay the author will probably never get another book deal from anyone or just yeah, it depends unless they write something extraordinary but they wouldn't then get a deal without writing another complete book first, mm. probably. So it's good to have a... It's good to earn out your advance, yeah. Um, what is, you, say, you say the small percentage of the book price. Yeah. How small is small? Is this going to be the same kind of thing as the music industry where like, musicians get completely shafted by record labels or are you um, treated a bit fair, fairer? Every contract, no matter what industry you're in, has a clause <clears> in to say that the musicians should be shafted. Mm-hmm. That's just standard across all industries. If you go and work in steel production, there's there's a clause that says if you see a musician, they get. I'm about to sneeze. Uh, 
I was talking about shafting musicians. You were talking about shafting musicians, steelworkers, claws, seeing. <laughs> I was talking about musicians getting shafted by steelworkers. I don't know. This has all gone down yeah. dark. <laughs> this is a very dark alley, and maybe we can revert back to just shafting musicians in the. Too late. Industry. No, we're there now. We're, we're there. there now. So steelworkers are shafting. Uh, well, the, there's big differences between the way that the music industry traditionally, the traditional model of the music industry, runs and the publishing industry, but there's some similar terms used. So you might get an advance for a record, mm -hmm. but generally speaking in the music business, that advance is the money spent on, on making, it. making it and on publicising it, distributing it, which can be a huge amount of money, and leave the musician with not very much at all. Yeah. Leave the artist usually in debt to the record company. So that's a key difference to the publishing industry, where the advance is for the author, and as long as the author delivers the book and it's not gibberish... Yeah which could be, you know, then the author keeps the advance. Usually the advance is broken up into chunks, though, so you'll get a bit of it when you sign the contract, a bit of it when you deliver the book, and then the last chunk of it when they finally publish the book. Okay. Um, and is the advance significant enough to generally, like for you, for example, would the advance be significant enough to ensure that you are working above minimum wage compared to the hours you put into it? Oh, well, it... that depends. That, and, and breaking it down into hour by hour is a really interesting way of doing it because, of course, writing a novel is all-consuming and mm. takes up every hour that there is of your life for the period in which you're writing it. It's completely... Forever. It feels... Well, it's not forever, <laughs> but it feels completely immersive. Mm. That's so, a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a wonderful feeling. It's a, and it's amazing to, to be in that process completely. As long as it's going well. Yeah, as long as it's going well. <clears throat> The size of the advance varies so hugely that you can't generalise and say whether it's a certain wage or not. Yeah. It just depends what you're lucky enough to get. Most writers need other jobs to survive. Okay. Apparently in this country it's 80% of writers. I can't remember where I got that number from though, but that's what I'd that heard. That sounds like a plucked out of the air. No, I heard that 80% of writers, and again I don't know how they categorise writers in that situation, but... Anyway, it's very lucky, I feel very lucky that I'm in the 20% of writers that doesn't need another job to survive. I just make a living from writing my books, which is great and a lovely way to live. Also because I would be useless at anything else. Not anything else. Useless, let me be specific, at office-based jobs. Turning up at the same place at the same time every day to do the same thing. Mm. I, that just doesn't appeal to you. Well, it doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> I just wouldn't be able to do it. I'd be hopeless. Or just turning up. Just turning up would be my first challenge? struggle. Yeah. Turning up to the interview would be my first struggle. Oh. The only proper job interview that I've ever had, they had my application. This was while I was still at university. And they had my CV and my application. And they had the set of questions that, it turns out, are standard interview questions. Standard human resources interview questions. I didn't know that. So these were questions like, Give an example of a time when you've overcome difficulties. Can you give an example of a time when you've worked as a team? That kind of question. I didn't realise that these were just standard interview questions. They started asking me these questions, and I said, you've got my CV in front of you, right? I've written these things on, on the application. Do you want me to step out for five minutes so <laughs> you can read it, and then I'll come back, and then you can get to the actual questions? Well done. That's what I actually <laughs> said. <laughs> in my only ever proper job interview. So that went well. Yeah, I presume the job was a success. I offered that I, yeah. Yeah. How old were you? 
Uh, I was at uni, that was third year of university, so 22. I offered to step outside so they could read my CV properly. <laughs> so they wouldn't have to ask their stupid questions. I've, I've never had a job interview. I just seem to fall into jobs. Good for you. Yeah, it's good at the minute. Cool. But then when I'm actually faced with the proper job interview... Well, there's my tip for you. If they start asking you those questions, maybe you should offer to step outside. Okay. No, no, just say, listen, it's all on the CV. Do you know who I am? I'll be back um, in yeah. five minutes, do your homework, then we'll talk. Mm. I did get... I was rejected from Tesco, though. Like, they didn't Just as a shopper. Me. You were rejected from Tesco from, just as, as a... As a shopper, yeah. I bought it okay. and I said no. Out. <laughs> Which was... Must have been the beard. I, I think it was the sword, actually, but that's... No, I'm joking. <laughs> I have been into Tesco with a sword before, and it's a long and sharp, convoluted oh, story. Sorry, yes. Yeah, long sharp objects. Well done, Joe. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't be employed with your uh, <laughs> incredible knowledge of everyday what objects. What a sword is. Go on, name another um, object. I'll tell you what it is. Cup. It's it's too difficult. Carry on. Give me another question. <laughs> another question. Um, Keep them coming, Tom. This is good. I'm enjoying it. So, you're in a now. We're moving away from. A first-time author to an okay. established author. Okay. Are you contractually obliged to stay with this? Well, I presume it varies depending on the contract, but you generally yes. stay with the same publisher. It, it depends, and this is something that the um, you, if you're a reader, you can find out because you just look who publishes the next book. Mm. So eventually, you find out. Usually, there's a sort of there's a standard next book clause in a contract, so that the publisher you're with gets the first look at your next book and has the right to make an offer before anybody else okay. can make an offer. But it's up to you whether you take it or not. But you've stayed with HarperCollins. Well, the Jimmy Coates series is with HarperCollins. And you were with Edge for the other one, wasn't it? Is it Edge? Yeah, the Edge series, of, published by Franklin Watts, which is good, really good short stories uh, as books. And I've got a book in that series called Lifters. Mm. So the, <clears throat> my only non-Jimmy Coates book is that. It's an action thriller about pickpockets. And that's not with HarperCollins, that's with an imprint of Hodder called Franklin Watts. Um, it's good that book, I'm proud of that. Lifters. Lifters, I, yeah. I, I have read it. You read it? I read cool. it, yeah, you gave Should me I a copy it? of it. I oh, did, cool. I was annoyed it was so short and I resented well, no, yeah. that. Yeah, well it was designed <laughs> to be short, I, 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 I appreciate that. it is designed to be short, but I think you should continue it because it does feel, to me, it felt like, well I've written the Jimmy Coates series and then I'm going to leave you for five years. <laughs> and then I've written this other book and I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen either. Well I'm a recluse. Probably. Naturally, I'm a recluse. <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I'm the J.D. Salinger of the children's book world. It's not good enough, Joe. I don't feel you're pulling your I'm the Marilyn Monroe of the children's book world. She's dead. I'm the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Charlie Chaplin of the children's book world. Okay. Um, I'm the Oscar Wilde of the children's book world. I like Oscar Wilde. Um, I'm the Bismarck. Any... I'm the Bismarck of the children's book world. I would not start with Bismarck. No, not Bismarck, no. bad choice. Iron Chancellor. Right. Let's talk Iron <laughs> Chancellor. Right, let's yeah, not do that. No, I've, I've done enough of Bismarck and Germany. And okay. So. Uh, I'm the Scipio <laughs> of the children's book world. Lost. <laughs> Just take it way back. Old school. <laughs> Classic style. Oh, dang. I haven't got the brain functionality today to <laughs> keep up. Um, yeah, is there going to be a ser is there going to be a follow-on from Lifters, or have you left that completely to the imagination of the reader to deviate? Great question. And I get asked that a lot about Lifters because of the way the story ends and I don't want to give too much away. In my head, not just in my head, in the book, to me, the story is finished. Okay. But I can see how that's ambiguous in, when you read it. That you might finish it and go, hold on a second, what happened with the... 
because to me the story is not about what happens with the the, the story is about the main character Adak's emotional change. The mm. story is change, and there's all sorts of ways of looking at that. But oh, the dog has woken up. Um, so lifters is not going to be well, continued. I, what I was going to say was, I would be very happy to write a sequel to Lifters, but it wouldn't be set straight after Lifters' first book finishes. It would pick up the story much later with the same characters. Mm. Because that journey that the character goes on, and he has to, he's a pickpocket and has to face questions about how he wants his life to go, and how he wants to live his life, and it's a sort of moral question. Uh, him battling his own decisions. It's the inner turmoil that's in, that interests yeah. me. So that story is the more interesting one to me than just the running about, the jumping and the fighting. And there is lots of that as well, because that's the nature of the book. It's an action thriller. But to me, in any book, you can have all of the running, jumping, fighting, explosions, action sequences, action sequences, chases. You can have all of that, yeah. but it gets dull really quickly unless there's something more. Something more, something the character is battling inside them or some other element going yeah. on the reader can latch onto so they really connect with the character and that's what it all comes down to. So for me that's what Lifters is about. I'd like to do a follow-on of that story perhaps at some point, there's no plans to do that yet. I'd also like to do more stories of that length, more short, Because hmm. that took thrillers. two days to write, didn't it? It took two, two days, days to write. I planned it before that but then it took two days to write and there was editing after that, but it's handy just to say it took two days to write. Uh, this seemed really incredible. Well, it's only 3,000 words long, so it's not that incredible. Still, 3,000 words is a lot. Frederick Forsyth wrote Day of the Jackal in 35 days, supposedly. That's where I got the figure of doing 2,000 words a day from I, when I first started writing. I needed to have some kind of guide about mm. how to write. And I read that he'd written 2,000 words a day to finish Day of the Jackal. Which I've still never read, though the 70s film of it is one of my favourite films. The remake is terrible, but the original is fantastic. I've read other Frederick Forsyth books, and he's quite good, but... Uh, 2,000 words very a good. day. 2,000 words a day seemed like a good number. So I, I thought, wish I could write 2,000 words a day. If he can do that, then I can do that. But if you're writing 2,000 words a day, it's much easier if you've planned your story already, mm. first thing. It's also much easier if you know you're going to edit it later, because you can just write rubbish. It's fine. They don't have to be 2,000 good words. Just any 2,000 words that tell the next chunk of the story that you've already planned. And if you think about that, well, 2,000 words is easy. Why don't you write 4,000? 10,000? Because you're too busy eating omelettes. <laughs> yeah, clearly. But if you really commit to planning everything properly first, and, and this is the heart of it, you really commit to telling yourself, this can be rubbish the first time I write it my first draft will be awful. And that you completely get rid of the sensor in your head and the editor bit of your brain. You should just be able to write and not stop typing. It never works out like that in practice because you're always thinking, oh, what's the best way of saying this? Can I say this better? Ooh, how shall I approach this scene? Mm. And really, in an ideal world, you'd switch that bit of your head off and just go, it doesn't matter, I tell the scene, I'm going to do it this way, bam, and just write it. So that you have something to then go back to and rewrite, and that's when you apply that other bit of your brain. And you go, okay, well I've told this scene from this angle, could I have done it better a different way? What would they be? Let's name 20 different ways that I could approach this same scene. And then you get down to the minutiae of it and go, does that word tell the story? 
Mm. Every single word, you challenge every word of it. 2,000 words a day. Yes. Um, yes. Do you, and it's like, as you're writing along, do you think I need to, like, maybe change this, but you don't get distracted with it? Do you have, like, little markers? You know what? Nearly. I, um, similar system. You're very good at this. I have a list of things to go back and check that will be general issues. Sometimes it will be particular things, but more often it's general things. I start off with a, a list that I've had for all of my previous books, all the previous Jimmy Coates books, and I just add to that list. So items that are on the list to start with are dialogue, action sequences, um, humour will be three of the things. So I'll just write it and then I'll know that I can go back through it just looking at the dialogue to make that the way yeah. that it should be and really polish that. Just looking at the action sequences, making sure everything is clear, exciting, tells the story, doesn't go on too long, is different and not anything anyone's seen before. So those are the obvious ones. One of them, usually in the Jimmy Coates books, is Jimmy's relationship with his father, Jimmy's relationship with the other characters, and I work on that. Giving each of those things a whole pass through the manuscript. And you're right, as I'm going along, I'll think of other things to add to the list to come back to. So I'll be writing a scene, I'll be going, okay, no, I need to work on whatever it is, Jimmy's... Maybe you, sometimes it'll be a, a thematic thing, mm. and that might not be anything that's noticeable to people, anybody who reads the book, so I don't really care, because I'm doing it for different reasons, but for example, certain shapes or certain colours or certain themes that come up through the book. Uh, so in Jimmy Coates' Target, for example, it's blood. No one would have noticed that, necessarily, but there's a whole thing running through Jimmy Coates' Target about about blood, particularly because for Jimmy Coates blood is very important, because remember that's where his genetic programming is. Mm. So it's not just about spilling blood, it's about blood creating your character. Yeah. And following that. In the other books, um, one of the books is a particular shape that recurs. One of the books, it's uh, there's issues with water, and I just go back and look at that and think, how can I use that theme to tell the story or evoke different different reactions in the reader they might not even be aware of subconscious things so if I can connect a particular event at the beginning of the story to water or a body of water then I can have a splash later that just connects back to that earlier thing yeah so um like to pick up on that do you would you say that you write for, the for example reader? in lifters lifters it's hands you can go back and read lifters and just look for hands and you can go and do that now. Yeah. Thank you very much for All your right. <laughs> uh, Do you write for the reader or do you write for yourself? Because you're going in and you're putting these themes in that you don't think the reader will actually overtly pick up on. Is this then like a hubris thing or is it um, for actually the reader? I think it makes it a better book. So in that respect it's for the reader. Mm. But I'm doing it for me as a reader in a way. So I'm doing it for the the non-existent reader that is the, the me that hasn't read this book okay. yet, because I'm, yeah. And also, it's, it's kind of, it's doomed to fail anyway, because I put these things in, and I know that however many years down the line, maybe just a year, maybe ten years, however long, at some point, I'll forget that I've done this. <laughs> and it's already happening with some things, so there's not necessarily themes, but there are character names in the books that I know means something, but I can't remember what. Is it in one of your manuscripts? It's in a manuscript, or it's in my notebooks somewhere, but sometimes it's an anagram of something, and I've forgotten what it's an anagram for. 
the name always means something. Okay. And it's always connected to some other character or something else that means something to the person I'm naming in the books. There's some really obvious ones, some less obvious ones, and some that I've forgotten about. Maybe. But, um, yeah, the use of a manuscript and the use of um, notepads is yeah. quite interesting in a world of technology and, like, you can just have all of your apps and everything on your phone, screen, yes. pad, and Google Keep and that kind of thing. Why do you still use traditional pen and paper? I use notebooks to do all of my planning. And I'm going to demonstrate. What's the benefit? Are you if I have a pen in my hand mm. and I'm actually doing this to write something down, you feel like you're working. Is no, <laughs> so you make an assumption. I, I, to be honest, I don't. It feels less like working. I feel like I'm working if I'm sitting at a computer. But to do this, even without a bit of paper there, just to write something down and to form the word with the end of a pencil or a pen connects to a different bit of my brain even than writing it on a computer and certainly than thinking of it in my head and certainly putting tapping it into a phone or an iPad or a tablet whatever it is it's simply for that and it unlocks different things it makes different connections in my head that was really useful when I realised that about myself that won't be true of everybody but it's certainly true of me and fiddling with things even when I'm talking makes different connections in my head Stroking the dog creates different things in my brain, for example. Okay, so, so it's to do with physical and mental manipulation of ideas. Physical manipulation of pencil becomes mental manipulation of ideas and makes better connections. And if I'm ever stuck on a thing that I'm typing on the computer, I just switch to a notebook. And then suddenly it just... Without even changing <laughs> where I am, it doesn't have to be a change of place. You can take a notebook out to a cafe or a park or whatever you like, but... I can sit at the same desk, just move the keyboard out of the way and start writing the same paragraph in, in a notebook Yeah. and it totally changes the way my brain is working and unlocks certain things. Okay, but do, you couldn't write a whole book by hand? Um, or do you feel maybe you could? Maybe I you should. could. The only reason that I don't... Spellchecker. <laughs> the only reason that I don't is it would add an extra stage in the work process of typing up what I've written. Mm. That's not a bad thing necessarily, because that gives you an extra filter. You can then edit as you type up. Just effort. Sometimes I do that. If I've written a bit by hand, it gets an extra filter because I go, okay, well I can rewrite that as mm. I'm typing it into the computer. So it changes. There are some really good tools for that though. There's, um... well, I'll go into that later. Go on. Karen. Um, well... Have you ever thought of just like writing a book by hand, just sitting somewhere, writing a book by hand and then just scanning it and uploading it and just seeing what people think of it? So there's no editing process, there's nothing. Wow. People are actually just like seeing your handwriting, seeing you as you write and think. I don't think I would do that. I think you should. Under a pseudonym, obviously, so you don't Because tarnish. that's not a finished book. That's the first draft. Well, that would still be interesting to people. I think. Oh, it would be interesting and I wouldn't mind... Now, showing a few bits of first drafts of books that I have then rewritten mm. and that have come out. But a first draft is not a thing to show anyone. Ever. It's like showing someone your pants. It's not, just just not done. It's just not done. It's not polite. And they're probably dirty in ways you didn't even realise. Yeah. So just, <laughs> just keep it to yourself. 
So nobody sees your first draft? No. Not even your wife? No. Does she, where, where, where does she come in the process? She's does the she... first person to see any draft other than me. Okay. So I write, rewrite, redo everything. She's also the first person to hear the story, which I do before I even write a first draft. Mm. So I'll plan and then pitch it to her. And from her reaction and her questions... Go back and... Go back and tweak the story plan. And pitching it to her only takes ten minutes. If you can't tell a story in ten minutes, it's not worth telling. So ten minute pitch. Sometimes it takes a bit longer if she has lots of questions. I need to do lots of rewriting. And then I write, and once I've written a first draft, I rewrite. Once I've done several drafts and I think I'm going crazy, mm-hmm. and I don't see how I can rewrite mm-hmm. it anymore, then I show it to her and she gives me very helpful notes. Sometimes very dramatic notes. Sometimes there's like pen marks or scribbled pencil through a whole page, and she just write what? Like, Wait, she reads the whole manuscript. Yeah. Dedicated. Well, she's just going to read bits of it. Well, I, I just I Pick can't, and I can't every other imagine page. if I ever just wrote the vowels. My girlfriend, I can't imagine her sitting there and reading through it all. And I think that'd be an incredibly daunting process. I think it's quite long, isn't it? Because you've what written seven books, six books. Yeah, well, and yeah. she sat and read all of those, and not she's not just reading for enjoyment; she's reading to that's assess. true. It, yes, you're right. And that it is, is a very different process. It's like an unpaid job. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It does take time, and you have to. It's it's amazing how someone that, where I can trust her notes and I can get that angle on her. Uh, my sisters are also very good at giving feedback of that kind. If I need another filter, I'll take something to them, and then eventually, it reaches my agent who does mm. the next round, and then eventually it goes from my agent to an editor at the publisher. Should it mm. be with the publisher, and then you get the edit. But usually the editor sort of, that's then called the first drop, but the editor often doesn't realise that it's already been through my wife, one of my sisters, and my agent. Yeah. And then, from the editor, once it's all ready, then it goes to sub-editor, proofreader, who does other checks and mm. edits in different ways. Even then, if, after it's gone through rewrites from me, notes from my wife, one of my sisters, my agent, my editor, sub-editor, and proofreader, some of the books still have mistakes in them. Bloody hell. That is... That's such a huge process. I mean, um, your editor will make these changes. Will he go through them with you? Or are these like just semantics, just spelling mistakes and that kind of thing? Or even if it's it just plot, like actual. Even if it's just spelling mistakes, it comes back to me. First. To do them or to. To sign off on them, to say, yes, that's fine. Okay. Sorry, I spelled it wrong. So you so, still have a lot of control. Yeah, so they check whether I deliberately spelled something wrong, which sounds silly. Mm. And it's. it's amazingly sort of flattering to me and generally spelling mistakes have been ironed out before that although there's a chapter, I can't remember which book it's in one of the books has a chapter title that's the name of a dam something something dam and I spelled dam wrong and that got all the way through the process I think to the very last stage before anybody <laughs> noticed that I put the wrong type of dam did you speak D-A-M-N yeah I put an N on it just not thinking. And, and I think everybody up to that point thought that I was making some kind of not-so-clever pun. Mm. But I just spelt it wrong. It was just a mistake. So who, who picked up on it? I think in the end I noticed it and just changed it. Oh. And at the very last stage, I went, oh, I've put an N there. It shouldn't be in there. So everything comes back to me. It can be anything. It's generally not huge plot changes. Mm. It's... Well, it depends what kind of edit it, edit it is. It can be phrasing, it can be... Early on in the process, the stuff that I do with 
the stuff that I do with Marianne, my wife, can be plot things. If she doesn't understand the sequence, or doesn't know why a character does a certain thing, then I need to go back and beef it up. But generally the plot has been sorted before that point by the pitching. Then there'll be... The slightly bigger edits are things like this paragraph, repeat something you said three pages ago, you can make them the same paragraph and put it here, or something like that. Mm. And I try to find the solutions for those problems myself. Which is always much easier to do with a printout, by the way, and a pencil. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you print out? Yeah. That's always much easier to do by having it laid out in front of you and going, oh look, I've just used the same description there as I used there. Circle it, circle that, join them together, and then I need to interpret that on, on the screen. I haven't found a way of doing that on a computer that replicates that process. Mm. It's much easier to do it by printing out and using coloured pens and things. And I've got all the printouts of my manuscripts and my scribbles all over. And some of Marianne's scribbles all over, where she's going, what is this? I don't get it. What's happening? <laughs> and then occasionally a little <laughs> smiley face. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a good bit. Nice. Excellent. Thumbs up. Yeah. Um, you are. You have a lot of... There are a lot of controls um, in place to ensure that a book has high quality. Yes. Like, you, you go through many processes. With the advancement or the um, perceived advancement of e-publishing and e-books, and people can now go off and self-publish, do you feel that the um, publishing industry is being diminished by the lack of that control? Bam, professional interview question. Professional interview question. Straight in there. I expected nothing less from you. Someone who's not being published by one of the traditional old-fashioned publishers can still write a really good book. Mm. And there's no, there's no, you know, there's nothing to say that all of the good books are published by publishers. Of course they're not. Or that the books that aren't published by mainstream publishers and that are self-published are all terrible. Of course that's not the case. I haven't actually read any self-published books, I don't think. So perhaps that's not something that I can... Even then, if I read a few, it would, it would be such a tiny sample. Mm. But it, it is a people. Yeah, it's a factor people should be aware of that there are that many filters between my spark of an idea and period of enthusiasm where I churn out first draft, and the book actually being sold to somebody. So, I, well, is the publishing industry being diminished? Like, is no. the quality? Do you feel that? it is affecting the quality of overall publishing, or do you think it's just like a blemish which can otherwise be ignored? Well, if you're taking an, if you're taking an average of the quality of all books, mm. obviously it's lower. But you don't need to do that. No-one's asking you to read the average of all books. All, all you're with, being... with, um, if it continues to rise and people do start self-publishing and avoid the traditional routes, do you think that there's going to be a problem? There's two things happening. Mm -hmm. If more people are writing, and more people are being encouraged to write, then I'd have thought that's a good thing. More good books are being written. It's not necessarily true, but I thought generally that would be the case. If more people who wouldn't have been writing before are encouraged to write, if they're reading more widely and starting to write, that's good. On the other hand, there's a danger that with these shifts in publishing, it's getting harder and harder for an author to earn money from the books for all kinds of reasons. And if authors are not paid, then the incentive for writing, the commercial incentive for writing, I should say, disappears. And then suddenly, you lose a lot. You lose a whole chunk of people who would write, mm. and would write really well. So those are the 
two things at play. You get lots of people. I think if you only had the people who... I think if the only people that you have writing are the people who would write for free, you're only going to get some of the good books. Yeah. You're going to lose a hell of a lot. And that's tricky. That's one of the things that publishing has to grapple with. So, um, would you... Do, do you feel that um, e-books... Uh, have got advantage. Do you feel that ebooks are the way forward? I are you still a published book person? Do you want to have the tangible physical thing? As a have? reader, as a reader, as a writer, um, take my perspectives. As a writer, I love ebooks. Mm. It's fantastic, and I've reached readers that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to reach with ebooks. I get a bigger royalty on ebooks as it happens. Yeah, but well, I suppose there's less um, cost involved in production. For various, that, for various reasons, new contract. That's supposedly. Well, that's a controversial subject, and publishers tend to tell authors that, uh, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, that they have as many costs with an e-book as with a physical But... <laughs> that uh, is such a crock. Anyway, I don't know enough about that to I get into to it, really. I want to talk about that. I would like... Well, I read a really interesting article about the way that publishers represent the costs of e-books to different parties, and that it's in their interest to represent the costs being very high when they talk to of authors, will, yeah. and the costs being very low when they talk to shareholders or bookshops or whatever else. Okay. Um, so is this underhanded? No, not necessarily. It's just that's the way business works. Well, I, I appreciate that's how business works, but is it... Well, it's not fair. But how can they, how can they actually physically justify <laughs> and say that e-books cost a nearly equivocal amount to a published book? That's just, it's incomprehensible to even suggest that. Because like, all you need is one digital copy, which you can get off a Word document, and then it's like, bam, it's done. Yeah, we've got to think of all the mechanisms that have gone in place I'd, to, to make that happen. Do you agree with it? Um, I don't know enough about it to agree or disagree. Gut feeling. My gut feeling is that in the long run, <clears throat> which should be now, but isn't yet, because things move too slowly and publishers generally, big publishers generally tend to move quite slowly. In the long run, it would be insane to me if it didn't cost less to put out an ebook than it costs to put out a physical paper book. Yeah. Whether that's true now or not, I'm prepared to believe that there are still huge costs involved in getting the book out there. And actually lots of the costs you still have. You still have the costs of paying the people involved, all the staff at a publisher, the writer. You still have all the costs of marketing and publicising the book and designing the book. I was going to make a point about ebooks. So I was saying, as a writer, I love ebooks. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. We got distracted by the size of my royalty for an ebook <laughs> as opposed to a physical book, which is just a, a quirk of, of particular things. Uh, as a writer, actually, I'll come back in a second, but we come to the reader side of things. As a writer, ebooks, fantastic, and I've reached other readers that I wouldn't otherwise have reached. I also think, as a writer, Ebooks as a, aren't really being used as a medium the way they could be. The potential of the ebook has not been reached by any means yet because they're still trying to imitate a physical book, but they're a new medium. Even the fact that you get some platforms where an ebook is designed so that you can imitate turning the pages. What's that about? <laughs> well, I mean, there's going to come a point where people don't even remember what turning pages was. Why are we trying to imitate that? It's insane to do that. Uh, and you don't have enough interactivity, enough 
all the other stuff that you, you know, non-textual stuff you can have in there. And the trouble is, I think, to do with the old-fashioned model of the way the rights are assigned. So I think some people are a bit scared of embellishing an ebook with too much other stuff because it might impinge on the audio rights or the dramatic rights, which are really valuable, particularly the dramatic rights. So if there's anything in an ebook that is at all dramatised or extra, it might be tricky, the thinking could be, that if, if a film company comes along and wants to make a movie of it, you need to make sure that no one has touched the dramatic rights. So that I think, I get the impression from certain places that um, there's a sort of fear of crossing over those boundaries. Whereas I think an ebook is a is a separate thing from a book, from a film, from an audio thing, and could use elements of all of those to create something else and be really exciting and new. But we haven't got that yet. Okay. As a reader, I read physical books. I have nothing against e-readers. I just have so many physical books that I haven't read yet that to you get don't even e want to delve to get an e-reader would just be a waste of time. So you don't have an e-reader. I don't have an e-reader. I have books on my phone. On an iPhone? Yeah. That tiny little screen? Yeah, well the words don't have to be that tiny. Mm -hmm. I don't read books on my phone that much. Okay. If I'm stuck without books, sometimes I would, but usually I've got a book on me, so it's mm -hmm. fine. Do you feel then, like, because um, how many books are going to be in the Jimmy Coates series? Is it going to be... Eight in total. It's going to be eight in total, yes. which means we've got two left. Um, well, number seven's out in June. Number seven is out in June. Yes. What's the date again, Joe? June 6th. June Jimmy Coates Blackout. Yeah. <laughs> Go and buy it. Um, let's say Jimmy Coates is finished. Do you feel by that point you will consider moving to a completely digital platform? Do you feel that the technology will be advanced enough and they will be commercialised enough to be able to go full digital? No. No, you're definitely going to stick with public... Like, well, first of all, it's not up to me. Is it? Do you have no say? Not really. If the publisher... Says if I if I were with a publisher for whatever the next project might be that says we're not going to do a physical book for these reasons that's our strategy mm -hmm. I wouldn't really be in a position to stamp my foot and say oh no you can only do it as a physical book would you support or that you have to decision though or would you if they can present <clears throat> the case to me that it made sense then yes fine if they showed me that yeah yeah. Well, I'm just interested because I think on your Wikipedia page, and I don't know if you wrote this. Um, it's I didn't write <laughs> Wikipedia page. There's stuff on my Wikipedia page that doesn't is not true. Oh well, this might be it. But it says you are very um, eager and to adopt new technologies, and you were like, oh, that's the true. first on Facebook and Twitter and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's and true. I was wondering whether that would then mimic into your actual. No idea whether that's work. true. Anyway, go on. <laughs> um, like, we should be pioneering. We should be pioneering and doing new things. Publishers aren't really doing it yet in a big way, for all kinds of reasons. One of them being cost as well, because it always costs more to try and do something new, to push, to do new things. Mm. Well, as long as they still make money for physical books, they'll still start putting physical books out. So yes. You know, it's just a commercial, it's a commercially driven decision. Mm. Certainly in me, I, I'd be quite excited about the prospect of doing something that creatively is meant for a new medium. Yeah. That isn't just a book that you've then turned into an e-book e and added bells and whistles to make it, oh, look, it's an e-book, it's more exciting. But a story that's conceived from the start, this is going to be an e-book, this is how certain elements are going to work. It's not a film, it's not an audio book, it's not a book, 
it's an ebook, and you can do certain things with it that you can't do with those other medium media. And to conceive the story from the start with that in mind, that would be really exciting. Would um, just to try and draw an example, would it be something? Because you mentioned interactivity, would there be an element to it perhaps where you actually influence the story of the book That's... through? Again, decisions you make, or you have to go online to research something and then provide answers and that kind nah, of thing. Nothing. That, that I don't think is the way forward. What would you? Well, okay. To do that works for some things and could be the way forward for a certain particular for a particular type of story. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not what talking about just a modern version of a choose your own adventure. There's not enough of those anymore. There's not enough of those. And those are great, and that's that's excellent. I was involved. At, well. Lifters grew out of a project that was that in film terms. Don't know whether you, that's on my website as well. That um, there was going to be a choose your own next bit of the story movie, and Lifters was started out as connected to some of the ideas that were that were knocking around for that. That I came up with uh, to work with the producer on that one. It didn't happen in the end, but I used the ideas or some of them and developed them and made them into a book short story. Um, the choose your own adventure thing and the interactivity, that's the obvious mm -hmm. and I think again I'd call that the fact the first base thinking of how an ebook should use interactivity. I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about This is deep level stuff here, Joe. I don't know how much to, to say about it, but why just why, other ways why, that why text can work. Other ways that text can work, other ways that you can use sound, colour, you know, you pretty much, you, you can't use smell, you can't use texture because you're stuck on a screen and it can't make the smell, right? You but can you start can, using texture soon. But you can do anything else, mm. right? In the bracket of anything else, choosing your own next bit of the story <laughs> is like, is nothing. And also it's not really what I want as a reader. Mm. When I'm reading, I want to be in the hands of the storyteller knowing confidently this person is taking me on the best journey that there can be because that's what they sat down with to come up sat down to come up with yeah they i don't want to be choosing my own little bit of the story or making my decision and diverting yeah. it so there's oh it's all right there's an equally good alternative i don't want that i want to do the best i want to be in the hands of a storyteller taking me on the best journey through the best story that can be written at the time by that person mm. Choosing my own adventure is not part of that. But embellishing, not embellishing even that saying embellishing the story is, is wrong. Using other elements to tell the story. It's more fundamental than embellishing the story. It's telling the story in other ways. The most powerful way that we have to tell a story at the moment is visual. You see the story unfolding in a movie. It's not being told the story, you see it happening. And visual storytelling is incredibly powerful and most movies even at a basic level, do it very well. Some do it incredibly well. And that's really exciting. And the moment you can start doing that with books, that's exciting. But I, I don't feel like we've actually grasped... Well, I'm not going to sit down and design an e-book with you right now. Well, I'm, we'll do it after the interview. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but on the side, I've just noticed that all of your books are colour 
coordinated. Behind me? Yes. Yeah, some of them are in slightly the wrong place though. <clears throat> I haven't quite got it right yet. Is that an OCD thing or is that an aesthetic thing? Or That's an aesthetic thing. On your behalf or with the wife's? Oh, me, I did that. You. <laughs> this is what you do when you're at home. Yeah. Just like, right, I need to write 2,000 words. Yeah, she's words. very tolerant of it. Yeah, the CDs and DVDs are also colour-coded. Oh, God, they are. Yeah. I, I, I'm just in a frog as well. I need some more water. Do you mind? Yeah, I'm a dog. Thank you. Um, so, we're going to... How does this work? Just pour. Just pour. It's, yeah. Is that enough? Thank you. Um, we're going to move completely away from e-books and e-publishing and that kind of thing, and we're now going to talk just about um, <clears throat> you more as a person and the things that motivate you and the things that drive you to write and where you gain inspiration from, mm. um, if you're happy to. Delighted to, yeah. Um, Sorry, that um noise was just uh, my scepticism of the whole notion of inspiration. Karen. Are you not... Are you not somebody who's driven by inspiration, then? I don't really get what people mean. Gen I'm going to be completely honest with you. When someone says, what, what's, where do you get inspiration from? Mm -hmm. It seems to cover so many different things. Do they mean, what happened to you, or what did you see that first gave you the idea for this story? Is that it? If we, we can take it like that. Or do they mean, what motivates you to sit down and write every day? Why don't you do what something else? That's in, out of enjoyment. What inspires you to write? It's just see. Anyway, it seems like yeah. there's lots of different things, and they all come down to this notion of again that, that I talked about hours ago now about um, ideas striking you from somewhere else. This inspiration strikes. Mm. That's first of all not how it feels. Also, I don't think it happens. It's it's if it ever does happen. That moment of inspiration is the result of hours, days, weeks of thinking and hard work and reflection. You know the Sir Isaac Newton apple story? Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton, sitting under a tree, hit on the head by an apple, comes up with the theory of gravity, or is inspired to come up with the theory of gravity. That didn't happen. He was never hit on the head by an apple. It's a myth. When they asked him during his lifetime how he came up with the theory of gravity... He said, by thinking on it unceasingly, which is great. And that's how it feels to write a book. You think on it unceasingly. You just don't stop thinking about it. You don't wait for an apple to hit you. And I think that story is a really nice tale that people who are not scientific geniuses, like all of us, <laughs> who are not Isaac Newton, we can connect with that story and go, oh, right, okay, so how you come up with something that amazing is something happens to you from the outside and... If I ever get hit with an apple, great, I'll have the inspiration. And I'll come up with something that good, or equivalent. And it's much harder for us to understand someone who just sits at a desk, works unbelievably hard, and is a genius. How do you, how do you get that across to anybody? Mm. And how do you get into the workings of someone's head and see what they're doing when they're coming up with gravity? So we create this story that we all latch onto and, and believe to be true, that some physical thing happened outside in the world and that's our, our notion of inspiration and that's not really how you write a novel so are you suggesting then that external influences aren't particularly pertinent to your own writing ability your own writing at all or are you I don't wait for ideas to come to me 
You sit I, there and just like force an idea out. Yeah. And this comes down to another thing that I've, I've ranted on about on my website and in person to many people, that the whole idea of a writer carrying a notebook, for example, is not so that you can write down an idea when it hits you. Mm. It's not so that you're never lost without something to write down with. Because to be honest, if you did come up with an idea just out of the blue while you're out and about, there's other ways of not losing that. It will stick with you anyway, won't it? Well, it might stick with you, it might not. You can <coughs> phone yourself and leave yourself a message. You can put it on a phone, you can stab yourself and write it on the pavement with blood. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's, Please don't do that, listeners. That's not what it's for. That's not what I use it for. Mm. You have a notebook on you, or I do at least, to train your brain to come up with something where there is nothing. You use the little moments in your day when you're otherwise left idle, five minutes on a bus, ten minutes in a waiting room, at a bus stop, whatever. Why am I obsessed with buses? Whatever it is. doesn't need to be on a bus. And then you get the notebook out and open it to a blank page without an idea, and you go, now I need to come up with something. And that trains your brain to create ideas where there aren't any. Even little silly things that you can just jot down. Even if it is just the first thing that comes into your head. Even that isn't an idea striking you from out of the blue. That's you switching on and yeah. saying, okay, brain, let's do this. What could I come up with? Even if what you write down is entirely derivative of the last thing you read or saw, that's still a useful thing to write down because that means you remember it. And you can then develop that. You can work on that and say, well, how could I do the opposite of that? Or what would be other consequences of that same thing? What if I took some other character and put them in a similar situation? Or whatever. Okay. Um, so, building on that, um, do you, who do you like read and admire? Do you have anybody who you like, I want to be like him and... Oh, that's a different question. <laughs> different question. It's okay, no, there are loads of different questions. Yeah, there are loads of people I read and admire. Among novelists, you mean, particularly? Uh, yeah, personally, yes. Yeah. Uh, so... For example, um, Paul Auster, I love. I think he's a fantastic novelist. Um, Michael Chabon is an amazing novelist. Nabokov is my number one guy. I think he's incredible. Sadly dead, but there you go. Um, it happens. It does. <laughs> so there, uh, there are children's authors that I think are brilliant and writing really good stuff. Um, Marcus Sedgwick, Tommy Dombavand for example, people that aren't necessarily the biggest names, but should be. Uh, yeah, all kinds of fantastic writers that I, that I admire. Chris Priestley is a fantastic writer as well. Uh, I could go on and just name all of my friends, but I'm going to avoid just doing that. Oh, um, so you've got a lot of friends in the writing circle then? Well, some friends are, are writers um, who are also brilliant. But, um, they're not necessarily people that I would like to be like. Mm. even those people who are extraordinary I mean if I could be like Nabokov great I'll be like Nabokov but I think that's it feels almost silly to think of trying to to be like that you just got to write the best that you can write and, and do, be, tell the best story yeah, that you can yeah. tell yourself and not imitate somebody else cool. Robert Ludlum <laughs> top guy amazing thriller writer are you going to advertise his book as well now and then ring him up afterwards He's dead too. He's dead? Yeah, okay. he's dead. Yeah, he wrote The Born Identity and other things like that. Uh, action thriller writer. Mm. 
Won't be ringing them up then. No, man. Um, when I interviewed Michael Carroll, he said that he, like, tried to avoid reading other people's work, especially in the same genre, for yeah. fear of either reading something that he'd planned to write, yeah. reading something that might inadvertently or, or like, overtly influence his own writing style. Yeah, true. And that kind of thing. Are you in the so, same? You are the same. Yeah. Um, partly because I, I don't see an upside. If I like the book, mm. the frustration of thinking this is amazing and I could never do it outweighs the enjoyment of reading the book. And if I don't like the book, I'm not enjoying it I don't like the book. So it's... <laughs> and there are way too many... Particularly in the field of children's action thrillers. The kind of genre that I write in. There are so many that are just really terrible. <laughs> They're just bad. And I It's been years since I've actually delved into the Well, exactly. I mean yeah. And that's frustrating and annoying. Want, and you I read it and you just, just, but I know it's such a bad And you just get angry. There are some people who are brilliant at it, but again I don't want to read them because I don't want to be A actually overtly influenced by them or be accused of being overtly mm. influenced by them. Um, so do you not acknowledge them? Uh, do you, well, I like, acknowledge them as, inf as influencers and writers. leaders in the field. Mm. But you don't read their stuff even before or after you've read the book, like written your own books. Well, let's take a particular example. For example, Anthony Horowitz, who is a magnificent oh, writer. Him, yeah. yeah, he's a magnificent writer and the pioneer of the kid spy genre, if you like. A terrible film. Leave that aside for a second. <laughs> uh, and I think his books on the whole are wonderful. I can't sit down and read all of the Alex Ryder books because, first of all, I don't think they're aimed at me. Well, no, you're a bit older. Yeah, and secondly, I can see they're good and I don't want to get drawn into the orbit of writing either consciously or unconsciously trying to write like that or unlike that. I don't want to be writing in connection with that. I've got to tell my story the way I want to tell it. Mm. And at the end of the process, when the books are packaged and marketed by somebody else and targeted to a particular demographic, then it's useful for me and it's been a, a really helpful thing to be able to say, all oh, right, you like Alex Ryder? Fantastic, try these as well. I think you'll enjoy them. Alex Ryder's great, try Jimmy Coates. And his success is really good for me. It lifts the whole genre. Hmm. And I have huge admiration for him as a, as a writer and as a man. Is he um, writing anything at the minute? I don't know. You have to ask him. I wouldn't even know where to start. Just tweet him. I'll just tweet him. Yeah, like I did. Just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, hello. Yeah. yeah um, He's pretty good on Twitter. Is he? Yeah. Does he live in London? I think he does live in London. He used to live around the corner. Oh, he used to live with all your chums. And he's just like, yeah, I know Alex. Well, right. no, I don't know him. But he used to live oh. in Crouch End, I think. I only know this from interviews with him. <laughs> You've had interviews with him? No, oh, not my right. interviews. I was going to say, what? <laughs> okay, I might have to do that. But we're not talking about him, we're talking about you. We are. And I feel like I say that so many times in interviews because we just deviate so drastically. That's fine, you've done well. I'm trying to stay focused. I might have to put the kettle on. Of how long we've been going. We have been yeah. going nearly two hours. I know, it's extraordinary. I might have to put the kettle on. Um, we can put the kettle on, or is there like anything else you really drastically would like to say? Because we can end it here if you like I would like drastically to say that Bye this has been bit. really fun yeah <laughs> thank you so much for coming to interview me no thank you uh, Tom everybody arts award voice 
thank you, awesome. And my new book, Jimmy Coates Blackout, is out on June the 6th. I hope you enjoy it. There's a free chapter or two, free sample, on the website, joecraig.co.uk, so check that out. And I'm excited about it because I think it's the best thing I've written. Genuinely. Genuinely, I think that it's the best one in the series so far. So maybe a good one to start with. Awesome. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank, Thank you for your time. So that was interview with Joe Craig number two. Probably in the future there will be a third. Who knows? Um, probably next time he has a book he wants to release. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Um, he is, I think anyway, which is probably the most important thing when I get to control who comes on my show. But I think Joe is highly interesting. And if you do want to tweet him or talk to him, he will respond, generally speaking. Uh, just tweet at Joe Craig UK. Um, that's how I got two interviews with him. It was literally just, hey, Joe, do you want to interview? Or do you fancy chatting inanely? And he says yes, he loves inane chatter. Um, so, yeah, go pester him on Twitter, uh, joecraig.co.uk, for like a bit more of a professional side to Joe. And... Subscribe to my podcast, rate it five stars, leave a comment, all that. Uh, There's one more thing I needed to say, which was Arts Award Voice. The people who have paid me to go and do these fantastic interviews and meet all of these amazing people. Um, And I really, really strongly hope that you will um, go onto their website, which is artswardvoice.com, and start to engage with some of the content that we're releasing on there. There's more stuff going on nearly every day and some of it is really exciting and really interesting and really pertinent to some of the issues which are being faced in society especially in the arts world so go artswardvoice.com then go onto itunes and rate me five stars and leave a comment then go and subscribe to joe craig's twitter and pester him have a good weekend and i will see you metaphorically sometime in the future goodbye